This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Johnny um, and I help lead youth and students here at God First. Great, we're going through the book of Isaiah. This is our new series and um, I love preparing for uh, this uh, preach that I'm doing because it's meant I've had to look deep into scripture. I've had to go line by line and work out what is it really saying? What is Isaiah getting at um, in these chapters? So before I read the verses on Isaiah, I want to pose a question. What do you do in times of crisis? How do we respond when we lose our jobs? How do we respond when someone in our family becomes ill? Or how do we respond when we get into debt? Or when we fail exams? Or just all of life's difficulties, what and who do we turn to? A man called uh, Dijek Bonhoeffer, he went through a pretty difficult time. He was um, a guy in Germany who got sentenced to a prison camp um, during a time of crisis in, U- in Europe with Hitler and Nazi Ger- Germany threatening uh, to take over Europe and the world in World War II. And he sent this letter to his family talking of how he was sad to miss well, greatly sad to miss his own son's baptism. And this is what he writes. You know that I shall be with you in spirit. It's painful to me to be sure that the improbable has happened and that I shall not be able to celebrate the day with you, but I've quite reconciled myself to it. I believe that nothing that happens to me is meaningless and that it is good for us all that it should be so even if it runs counter to our own wishes, is I see it, I'm here for some purpose. And I only hope I may fulfill it. In the light of the great purpose, all our hardships and disappointments are trivial. 11 months later, after he wrote these words, Bonhoeffer was executed at the age of 39 in Fossenberg prison camp. But his words from prison will never be forgotten. I believe that nothing that happens to me is meaningless. And as I see it, I'm here for some purpose, and I only hope I may fulfill it. See, in this world we live in, there will be difficulties, and there will be despair and tragedy because we live in a broken world. God created the world perfect, but because Adam and Eve sinned, Evil entered the world, causing the world to change and deteriorate from what God had planned. And as a result, life is hard. Our lives are hard. And we hear of horrific stories such as even last week, the attacks in Sri Lanka, or we hear of natural disasters as tsunamis and earthquakes. This world isn't right. But here we see Bonhoeffer. 
He was going through a difficult time, but he knew and trusted in Jesus. Though he was going through something that was leading to his death, he had put his faith fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this book of Isaiah and in chapter 6, which we're going to read from shortly, we see how Isaiah is transformed. His life is going through, and Isaiah and Israel is going through a terrible time in their history. But before I read this, I want you all to just take a moment and imagine, what would, be, what would it be like if you met God? Imagine it now. What would you imagine to expect if you saw God? Do you imagine it like meeting him on some fluffy clouds and having a nice warm embrace, having a cup of tea? Or do you imagine giving him a fist pump and a high five and saying, how's it going, G? I don't know. These following verses I'm going to read is what Isaiah experienced and what his vision of meeting God was like. So, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. It's like the song we sung at the beginning. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a, coal, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. I'm just going to pray. Yeah, Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is living and active uh, today, Lord God. And I pray as uh, we speak directly from your work, Lord God, would it touch people's hearts this morning? Uh, would you be just uh, opening people's hearts to what you've got to say, uh, Lord, and um, be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray for you to come and impact us and change us and transform our lives. Amen. Amen. Okay, so from the onset, these verses could seem a bit bizarre. What is it with these angels called seraphims? What's with the robe that fills the temple? Is this all to be taken metaphorically or literally? We're going to get down and dirty and unpack this for ourselves. So, the first verse in this chapter says, talks of King Uzziah dying. 
Imagine that. It's like when the President Kennedy of America was assassinated. The country went into absolute turmoil. What are you going to do? Or, for example, if, for those of us who are old enough to remember, I actually wasn't born. <laughs> but <laughs> when Prince Diane suddenly died, Princess Diane, sorry. The country was, yeah, you can tell, wasn't there? The country was in absolute shock. This would have been the same, but quite possibly even worse for Israel. King Uzziah was a good king as it goes for kings of Israel, though there weren't many. He was a, a military genius who had won wars against the Philistines, the Arabs, and the Ammonites. And this felt disaster for Isaiah and the people of Judah as a, another king from Assyria was taking down Ar their Aramean city. And this caused an absolute bloodbath and he soon turned his greedy eye towards Jerusalem. And at this moment, Israel really needed their king. But he died. And King Jotham uh, took the throne after and it was far less a man than he, making 740 BC a year of great trouble abroad and great disaster at home for Judah. Now I find already it's in interesting to point out that Isaiah shows himself as a godly man by going to the temple courtyard to pray and ask for help. In this moment of disaster, he, he goes to pray. So who do we go to when we need help? Do we go and pray? Do we get on our knees and ask God, come on, we need you? In doing so, when Isaiah was praying, he saw a vision of God. And this vision actually makes him the answer to his own prayers. And so I want to ask you, what are you putting your trust in? Is it a king? What happens if your health goes? In tragedy, how do we react? And it all goes back to what I first said. So, when you imagined meeting God for yourself, did you think of meeting him on the throne or did you imagine meeting him on some fluffy clouds, clouds and baby angels flying around with their love heart bow and arrows? <laughs> no. In the vision, we, we see God fully revealed. We see him absolutely stripped back and as he is. And this is what it says. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We have this incredible scene of Isaiah seeing the Lord, but never actually describing what he looked like, but knowing that the Lord is seated on the throne. He is in charge. He is at the center of attention. Good. And then we have the train of his robes filling the temple. This could be seen as a metaphor for the fact that God is omnipresent. He isn't just on the throne, he is existing absolutely everywhere. Not just confined to that one spot, he is God, he is absolutely everywhere. And then we have the seraphims flying above him. The word seraphim actually means fiery ones. Imagine how terrifying that must have been in this vision, just seeing these fiery angels flying above the throne where you actually can see God. This is terrifying stuff. And the, the angels are there at the king's side to minister to him whatever he needs. 
And incredibly, even these angels who have quite a high level in the kingdom of God, they have to cover their faces. They have to cover their eyes. Even the angels ministering to God cannot bear their faces to their true king. And in fact, only their ears are left open so that they can hear what God is calling them to do. And even when God speaks, the whole earth shakes and it trembles. This is all pointing to a mighty, mighty God, the creator of all things. His power and majesty are revealed. And it says in Exodus 33:20, "You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live." And sometimes you might wonder, why couldn't they see God? Why could they not just look at God? And actually, this vision shows something of why. Because God is so holy, that he is so majestic, that it's just so utterly and good that actually we cannot be in the presence of God. We have the seraphims also chanting a song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now why did the angels sing holy, holy, holy? and not powerful or mighty or loving. It's because God is completely other to us. The Hebrew word for holy is, uh, my pronunciation might not be great, but (laughs) uh, kodesh, which means apartness, being separated. He is altogether good, showing that God is altogether holy, sacred, set apart and separate from his creation. And adding to this Hebrew word, they use a repetition to express superlatives to indicate absolute certainty, absolute totality. Only here, they've actually had to go another step further because God is just so holy and they have to use a threefold repetition. And it's like they are creating this super superlative because they don't have any other way to express how holy God is. They can't put it into their own words, so they've just had to go, he's holy, holy, holy. That is the closest they can get to describing what God is like. Does this not make us think, wow, what a God, what a majestic, powerful God we have, because it should. God is more holy than we can ever Imagine. And we see the same level of authority and holiness in Matthew 8, 23 to 27. And if you've been following the church's uh, 5 by 5 by 5 series, then you would have uh, come across this and you would have seen when Jesus calms the storms and the disciples are saying, what kind of man is this? They are afraid and they worship him. They see Jesus, they see God, and they see, wow, he is so powerful. He is so utterly and truly God, and they are absolutely terrified. Mm. What is it that makes God so immense and distinctive in these moments? It is God's total and unique moral majesty. It is not the consciousness of humanity in the presence of divine power, 
but the consciousness of sin in the presence of moral purity. Let me just say that again. It's not the consciousness of humanity in the presence of divine power, but the consciousness of sin in the presence of moral purity. That is what is so terrifying. By ourselves, we can never approach a God as holy and set apart as that. We have no chance. God is totally and utterly terrifying. He is totally and utterly good. We are made from the dust, but he is eternal. He is faithful, but we are fickle. He is all-loving, but we are hating. He is all-knowing, but we only know a fraction. He is glorious, we are shameful. He is holy, we are sinful. At this part of the story, Isaiah has a realisation. Woe is me, he cries out, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah realises, I am so full of sin. I do not deserve to be in God's presence after the angels have been singing, holy, 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 it's almost like they could be chanting, set apart, set apart, set apart. As I was thinking, I shouldn't be here. I can't be here. I can't be in the presence of God. And actually, the, another meaning for woe is judgment upon me. He knows that he is unworthy. He's full of sin. Woe is Isaiah. He is unraveled. He is undone. He is going back to the dust yeah. because he's in, in the presence of the king. And Isaiah senses his, his sinful nature and how it compares to God and that the matchup is completely uneven. God is perfect and he is just the dust of the earth. And at this moment, Isaiah knows that he deserves to die for this. He just can't be in the presence of such a mighty and holy God. Now his fears start to be confirmed. A seraphim flies with a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs, tongs from the, the altar. And you're standing before God and you're in this throne room and you see this fiery coal from God. And, you, and sometimes we're, we are in worship and we say, God, send your fire. <laughs> but do you really want God to send his fire? If we see what it's like here, that is a scary thing to think about and to ask for. So the coal's coming towards Isaiah. And he's not thinking, ooh, look at this glowing, burning coal. Do I get to kiss it on the lips? Oh, this is going to be nice. No. In the Old Testament, fire is not a cleansing agent. It is symbolic of the judgment and wrath of God. But instead of getting burnt to pieces, which he should have done. Instead of death, something remarkable happens, something that demonstrates God's scandalous grace. The live coal, which was brought to Isaiah from the altar, which usually would have been a place for sacrifices in the Old Testament, it would have been a place where the animals were burnt so that the people uh, of Israel could be forgiven. But 
the live coal from the altar goes beyond symbolising God's divine wrath in this moment. And as the coal touches Isaiah's lips, God wipes Isaiah's sin away, completely and utterly. It says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. His debt of his own life has been totally paid for. It should have been Isaiah on that altar. He is the unclean one. It should have been him. But God atones Isaiah for his sin. God forgives. God cleanses. And God reconciles Isaiah. Mm. This, friends, is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He wasn't burnt on the altar, but he was unraveled on a tree. He lays his life down for us. He is our atonement for sin, so that we can be made at one with him. No longer are we set apart from him, but we are made holy with him, so that we can come into his presence. We can now stand and be accepted in front of him because our debt is paid for. He took on the wrath of God, defeating death, defeating sin, once and for all time, and he has won the victory. Because we were dead in our sins. We deserved death. The wages of our sin was death. Even if you think, oh, you know what, I'm not such a bad person. I only lie a couple times a week, and... You know, I try to do good, I give money to charity. We all fall short of God's standards. And we are all in desperate, desperate need of God's saving grace. I feel like these words from Ephesians are so powerful and freeing, and so we're going to read them together. So, are we ready? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in him. Wow. Such powerful and incredible words. Ephesians sums it up so well. Now, Isaiah's response from this vision is not just to finish praying in the temple and go home and have a cuppa and just think, yeah, that's right, that was a cool vision. <laughs> no. Neither are we to hear the good news of the gospel and go home today and have a nice lunch and carry on in our own nice little worlds and think, oh, that was a nice meeting today. I met with God and it was nice. And not to be changed and transformed. This is what the gospel is. So the next words in these passages are, and I heard, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. This is a shock comparison to how Isaiah was like just moments earlier. 
earlier, he was crying out, woe is me, for I am unworthy. I do not deserve to be in God's presence. But now we see him actually putting his hand up like, yeah, I want to go. I'm ready for God's calling. This is the gospel. It transformed us. We are going one way, which only leads to death, but God picks us up and reorientates us. He doesn't just save us and leave us where we are, but he takes us on a journey where we have to trust and lean on him. That day in the temple, Isaiah encountered the splendor of God. He realizes his own unworthiness. He experiences God's forgiveness and he surrenders to God's call. And when people encounter God's call, these are the kinds of experiences are often part of their story. Just as Judith was saying as she came up earlier, she was saying, actually I felt God calling me to learn uh, to do a counselling course and that was part of God calling her into where she is in her life now. And even for me, I've seen God's calling. I remember when I was 12 years old, I was at a Christian festival called New Day and I just felt God convicting me and saying, you're just a lukewarm Christian. You're just ticking this box and saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but not living it out, not sharing with your friends who Jesus is and actually sharing the gift of the gospel. And actually in that moment, I was like, you're right. I'm, I'm not being a follower of Jesus who is sold out for him. And that was a moment where I felt God called me. Just similarly to Isaiah. And if you're a Christian today, you probably would have felt that calling on your life too. You would have experienced a moment where you have heard or known something of God's call in your life and he has, he has called you to do great things for him. And if you're not a Christian here today, he is calling you. He is running after you. He wants you to be a part of your family and he loves you so dearly and he wants you to know him. So God is calling Isaiah to go and preach God to the nations of Israel. And the symbolism of that live coal touching his lips was God preparing him to speak and to go. And we heard of the history of Israel just before, and this is going to be no easy, straightforward task. The country is in a dark time of foreign countries attacking them, They have no king, and no one really believes in God anymore. But Isaiah is going to scatter the seeds amongst Israel. God has called him to sow. It's like the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 1 to 23, where we, again, if you've read the 5 by 5 by 5 series, (laughs) you would have come across this story and what Jesus is talking about, that many seeds will fall on thorny ground and not be able to grow. They will fall on soil that is thin, that doesn't have enough nutrition for the seeds to grow. But there is hope. Some will fall on good soil and some will produce grain. You know what? Isaiah's call in this story is also your call. Why does God need us to go? Well, God is graciously calling us to be involved in his gospel 
story and rescue plan for the world. What a privilege that is, that God is calling us to get apart in this, that he's using us, even though we are so messed up as we are, but because we have been forgiven, because we have been set free, he is calling us to be on this adventure with him so that we can lead other people to Christ. It's not going to be easy for us being the sower. It wasn't easy for Isaiah. Especially, it's not going to be easy for us in Cheltenham. Cheltenham is blessed to be majority a place of affluence and comfort. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 19, 23-24, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Here in Cheltenham, it can feel so difficult because we, we can be so comfortable and just relaxed in our own lives. And yeah. people will say to us, you know, I've got it all. I don't really, I don't think I need saving. I don't need a God. I've, I've got a nice house. I've got food and water on the table. I'm all good, thank you. No God for me, thank you very much. So we need to pray diligently and we need to work hard for these people so that God's power and conviction comes over the people of Cheltenham. So that God's power comes over and shows them they have fallen short from God's standards and how actually that means they do need a saviour. A saviour that can forgive them. A saviour that is gracious and merciful and loving and caring and is all together good. And this is exciting because Jesus has given us this gift of the gospel and he is calling us to give it away to anyone who sees and believes. So let's, let us be intentional with, God's, with gospel conversation with our friends so that it will never, though it will never be easy. And we need to long for God to just melt the hearts of our neighbours, of the parents we see in the playground, for the students of this university and for the youth of Cheltenham. God can and will use you if you let him impact your life and if you let him transform you, if you let him grab a hold of you and impassion you, he'll give you the boldness to speak for Jesus. You know, here at God First, we don't want to be a church that keeps on seeing but never really changes. We want to be a church that is continually being renewed uh, in our hearts, in our minds. We want to be constantly transformed by the gospel because it is this all-encompassing thing that changes every aspect of our lives. So let him come and share with you the goodness that he brings. Let him challenge and convict and impassion you. Bonhoeffer, dying in prison, was that a waste? Or is that the reality and sacrifice of following Jesus? God's calling made a difference in his life. It made a difference in Isaiah. So let us make a difference in our lives, in how we share and how we live out our lives for Jesus. God has called every one of us here to spread the news. And it is good news. There's nothing better than being able to declare, 
that what we have received, that what we have seen, that we have been set free because we've got a Father in heaven who is insatiably gracious and unconditionally loving. Is this not good news to share with the people that are closest to us? Or even the people who are just around us in our daily lives that we bump into? So, in this vision, Isaiah experiences and speaks of God's holiness and might. It speaks of God's character of forgiveness. But it's not just that God has made our lips clean. He doesn't go back to his comfortable way of living. The gospel is a complete reorientation of our lives. We are now new creations. We've been given a new heart. God has given us a new heart so that we can uh, be with him. And for us, it's time that we follow the call that Isaiah has received for ourselves. To get caught up in God's mission for Cheltenham, for the UK, for the nations. God is calling each and every one of us today to be ambassadors for him. So we're going to come to the altar and recognise Jesus' death and resurrection through the breaking of bread. Because we get to witness forgiveness. We get to have oneness in Christ. And this is a symbol of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, it says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if during this short talk, you may have been reminded of how holy God is and what an incredible moment it is that we can just come before him that we can come into his presence, that actually we can take bread and wine, that we can have a relationship with him. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.